Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure to welcome Sean Eisenhower back to the podcast. Welcome back, Sean. Glad to be here. Thanks, James. So, Sean, for those that may not be familiar with you, you are the founding partner at Iridicio. You've been heavily involved in maintenance and reliability for a long period of time, starting off in industry, moving to consulting, then starting Iridicio. Although super brief, what can you fill us in on anything I missed? Uh, I think you hit the basics, James. I think, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, I really have a passion for folks making uh, improvements in the business. Uh, and a lot of times that's specifically around leadership and people. And whether well, you're talking reliability, Six Sigma, Lean, doesn't really matter. This steering team topic that we're going to talk about today really, uh, really does make a big deal. All right. Excellent. And that's ex- exactly what we want to talk about is the role of a steering committee in maintenance and reliability implementations. Now, some people are probably thinking to themselves, what is a steering committee? Why do I never, why have I never heard of this? What do I need to do with it? And that's what we're here to talk about is we see a lot of our clients struggle with the actual change part, getting leadership on board, getting the lower levels within the organization on board. And a steering committee is really there to help with that whole change in implementation, but it's often overlooked. But before we dive into the intricate details, can you explain to us what a steering committee is? Absolutely. So, I mean, a couple things. It's called by different names. Some people call it a steering committee. Others call it a leadership team. Um, it can be even just plant leadership in some cases. But it's it's a group of leaders that set the vision. They develop the communication strategy and they remove roadblocks as we go further down the implementation. And I'll dive deeper into each of those, but it is your group of folks that are there to make sure that the implementation of whatever you're working toward is successful. All right. Excellent. So steering committee is really there to help move this thing forward, drive that change, make sure that change is embedded Now, why do we need a steering committee? Why can't a maintenance manager just get up and start implementing maintenance and reliability? Man, that's a that's a good question because a lot of them have tried over the years, um, and some have been very successful, I might add. Uh, but if you look at the different organizations and and why you need the steering team, the steering team really it casts a clear vision to the organization for what reliability or asset management or uh, maintenance improvement, whatever you're going after, it it really clarifies that vision. Um, the second thing is if you look at some of John Cotter's work, and and I'll talk about John Cotter a little more as we get into this thing, but he talks about if you really want to make organizational change, you have got to have a guiding coalition. And that's another phrase that could be used to describe the steering team. Um, and, and so with that said, uh, we want to make sure that this group exists. We want to make sure that they're active. Uh, and we'll talk about as we go deeper down into the presentation today that they do change. Their role changes, their focus changes, their intensity changes. Uh, and right. we'll get into some of those details. All right, perfect. So with that being said, you said their role changes. You mentioned they quite a few times. Coalition 
who should be on the steering committee? Is it just two people? Is it 10? Is it 30? And what are the roles we need? That's a, that's another, another tough question because, um, you know, you, you really have to look at your organization and see where you are and what you're trying to do. Uh, how big the change is that you're trying to make will affect the involvement, but let's talk just generically for a reliability implementation. I would suggest that you probably have eight to 10 people on the leadership team. Uh, I would suggest that you also will have people from different parts of the organization. So HR will be involved. Um, you will have operations leadership involved, you'll have engineering, you'll have maintenance. So you really want a cross-functional team because if we don't have a cross-functional team, what we've seen in the past with uh, other implementations is that they get to a point where they just can't go any further. They kind of get stuck in the maintenance realm, if you will. Uh, so I think that is uh, absolutely critical because we want operations to uh, support us. We want, you know, to make sure that our our, um, our expectations for what an employee does from an HR standpoint is aligned with uh, the, the processes and the things we're trying to change. All right. So the steering committee should be all encompassing, holistic, making sure we have all the different functions because let's be honest, all those different functions impact reliability. They absolutely do, James. And, and I, I'll tell you one, one kind of unique situation. Uh, and this was up in your neck of the woods, up in Canada. I mean, you know, you probably know them because, I mean, you know everybody in Canada. So um, with that said, uh, it was an organization that had a very strong union presence. In fact, there were five unions within the facility. And so as part of their leadership team, they used the traditional plant leadership team plus each of the five union stewards. Four of the five unions chose to participate and they became very active and very engaged parts of the leadership team as they move through their reliability implementation. All right, excellent. Now, what is the role of the steering committee? Because I hear conflicting things. So we got our team in place. Should they be actively working, developing risk, communications, that type of thing? Or are they just kind of giving the stamp of approval and moving on? Well, unfortunately, James, again, this depends on the nature of the change, but I'm going to give you from a reliability implementation standpoint and from a my best case scenario standpoint, uh, and I'm going to answer it from that perspective. But I would say that, you know, they need to be working on things like creating the vision for where we're going over the next 12 months or 18 months or, or three years or five years. Uh, we need to have this group working on what are the risk associated with this change we're kind of trying to make because this leadership team sometimes has visibility into parts of the organization and things that are going to happen in the future that the rest of the organization doesn't. So identifying those risks and, and making sure that we have something in there to communicate or address those risks, I think is absolutely critical, which leads into my third part. So we talked about vision. We talked about risk. The third part is communication. Uh, I think the focus team needs, or sorry, the leadership team needs to be working on the communication plan. Um, many of them, while they're not the only ones that are communicating, they're certainly arguably some of the most important people to communicate. And so, you know, in my ideal situation, I'm going to have that leadership team very heavy engaged in vision, very heavy engaged in risk, 
very heavy engaged, engaged in communication. And then it becomes more of what you said later in your question, and that is that they start approving things. Because when we get to the technical focus of the implementation, I'm hoping that we have focus teams that are focusing in those areas, and they're really the subject matter experts to those technical topics. So they're developing the processes, the tools, the procedures, the things that we're going to use. They are the right people to do that because they are the subject matter experts in many cases and the leadership team merely needs to be looking at those and approving them making sure that they fit into what they know as the future model all right perfect so they're doing a combination of both working and approving it's going to change depending on what phase they're in that sort of thing now how often should they be meeting to do this you know we talked about the different tasks the vision risk communicating how often should they be meeting? Is it once a week, twice a week, five times a week? And is it for an hour or two or is it for, you know, eight hour working sessions? Great question. So one of the things that I would say um, is that it, it depends on what phase of the implementation that you're in. And I, one thing I can't do on a podcast that I would love to do right now is turn around to the whiteboard and start drawing, you know? Um, but if, if you think about it and you kind of take this image and you put it in your mind, um, there is a huge amount of work that the leadership team does upfront and early in order to prepare for the rest of the organization, to prepare for the focus teams, to prepare for the implementation. So if you could draw all the leadership team's engagement, there's a big bump in the beginning. There's a lot of time spent together. Those may be two-hour sessions, but some of them may need to be working sessions that are five, six, seven hours long in order to get the task taken care of. Uh, you know, as we go through a reliability implementation, we have a master plan, and that master plan serves as a to-do list, if you will, for each of the focus teams moving forward. And so they're working on getting through those focus team items, and so they know what they need to do, but they know that they're going to be spending more time in the early phases of the project addressing them. And then their involvement doesn't go to zero, but it drops off significantly as the focus teams pick up and start doing more work from their perspective. All right. Excellent. So it's going to change once again, depending on what phase we are in the implementation. And we need to make sure we communicate what those expectations are up front. Because personally, I've seen where maybe they weren't aware of the time or level of commitment involved. And all of a sudden, they're not doing some of those tasks or those tasks are delegated to a few people on the steering committee and the rest are just approving instead of getting that holistic view. Um, so I think that's good to communicate up front. Well, and I think, James, too, we can add to that and, and say that, you know, we know that just like situational leadership applies to the focus team leaders and the focus teams, it also applies to the leadership team. And you know that, and without drawing it out in everybody's mind, but we know that in the beginning, they're going to be excited because it's something new. But we also know that they're going to go through what we call the valley of despair. And it's going to be, you know, unfortunately, some of the same time while we're having some of the longest meetings. And so you're fighting that battle between those two to make sure that you keep everyone actively engaged, but that you also, uh, at the same time, don't let them drive themselves too negative into that valley of despair. And I know that's really probably for another day and another topic, but just know that situational leadership and the work of Ken Blanchard uh, really applies just as much to this team as it does to anyone else in the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the other questions I hear a lot is, you know, we have 
wide range of different functions on the steering committee. How do we manage some of those competing interests? You know, someone's trying to drive this agenda or they feel this is the right direction to go while the team overall feels this way. Or we have two departments have different goals that are not completely aligned with each other. How do we manage all those competing interests? James, you brought all the good questions this week because these are hard questions and they're really, you know, they depend on the situation and what you're dealing with, with each individual focus team. Uh, through the years, I've had some focus teams that were very well aligned and I've had some focus teams that honestly were pulling in six different directions. So um, if I think about those that were pulling in six different directions and had differing, differing opinions as to, you know, what the end goal was and how we were going to get there, I think one of the best things we can do is have a clear vision. Uh, and bounce every one of those positions off of that vision. So if, um, you know, if someone wants to reduce the inventory in the storeroom, but the maintenance manager, as an example, wants to increase inventory, so he always has the parts that he needs, we need to bounce that off of our vision. Are we looking to produce material at a lower cost or are we looking to increase throughput? Because, you know, your vision really determines which one of those directions is most important uh, obviously with some rules of logic applied as well. Okay. So we're going to use the vision to help get everyone on board. And I'm guessing too, that, you know, within these steering committees, people might not agree, but they'll be aligned to what it is in some instances, right? You may have people that, you know, like you mentioned, throughput versus costs. Someone may want the throughput, but overall the business is focused on the cost. So they agree with it or they don't agree with it, but they're aligned with the direction. I think that's key to understand that difference. Yeah, I think that's absolutely key. And I think that, you know, the second part of it is we can disagree as a steering team, steering committee or a leadership team. But at the end of the day, when we leave the room, we leave the room with as a united front. And yep. I, I think that's the big, the big thing. It's okay to argue. I, over the years, man, I have seen people uh, with their blood veins blown out in their necks, you know, and they're yelling at the top of their lungs. And then I've seen others that, you know, took a different approach. But at the end of the day, when a good leadership team, when they leave, they're all going to be on the same page and marching to the same orders. All right. Excellent. Now, with that being said, we have these competing interests. We have some other personal dynamics that may go on. How do we know if we got the right people on the steering committee? How do we deal with that? So having the right people in the steering committee, I mean, I think the biggest thing is you want cross-functional, you want all of the individuals that are involved in the implementation. And then I do understand that some of them are going to be less involved than others. I mean, if you talk about operations and engineering and maintenance, they may be very highly engaged in a reliability implementation. Maybe finance and HR aren't as involved, but they're still critical because at the end of the day, I need to be able to quantify the savings and that's going to take finance and finance buying into what we're generating from a metric standpoint. And if I'm going to change the job descriptions and make them align to the new business processes, I'm going to have to have HR involved. So I think diversity across uh, the leadership team is very critical uh, and will help you in the long term. Do I believe that everyone has to be at every meeting? No, I don't. If we're going to be reviewing, you know, um, the, the the tool for FMEA as an example, and HR can't be there for that meeting, that's probably okay. But when we get to the point where we're approving 
uh, processes, and those processes are going to then dictate new job descriptions, then you better believe HR should be sitting in the room because they need to let us know if there's an issue from a collective bargaining agreement or from uh, just an HR perspective. You know, we don't want to set any traps that cause us issues as we implement. So diversity, I think, is the big answer, and that's diversity across the different disciplines in the organization. I will tell you one thing that I have seen, and I kind of alluded to it with the uh, with the union example earlier. Um, I would say your non uh, non uh, your informal leaders, if you will, those leaders in the organization that maybe don't have the title, but you know everybody listens to them. You know everybody marches to the drum that they're banging. It may make sense to bring some of those folks in and make them part of the leadership team as well, even though they're not traditionally part of the quote-unquote facility or plant leadership. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio's IBL, blended learning for maintenance and reliability professionals. This SMRP accredited project-based curriculum will take you through all aspects of a maintenance and reliability program and provides you with all the tools you need to generate a 30 times return on investment for your organization and a set of credentials from the University of Tennessee for you. You can find out more at ibltraining.com. Yeah, no, I think that's a great call out because like you said, that informal leadership plays a huge role in successfully implementing these things. Now, we've had the steering committee. we got the right people. They're doing the right tasks. How long does this steering committee continue on? When do they disband or are they there forever? They are there until the project ends. But as I said, you know, there is a curve. There is a bump up front where they're doing a lot of bigger sessions, longer sessions, more often uh, they're meeting together. And then, you know, they may go to to once every two weeks for two hours uh, as you get further along in the process because they're approving things. They're, they're looking over to make sure that it aligns with the strategic vision of the organization, uh, that sort of thing. And then as you get to the very end uh, of the implementation or where it's becoming more of just the way we do business, it may be once a month and they're doing a metrics review or they're reviewing uh, examples that are coming forth of good practices or bad practices. Uh, within the organization. So it really becomes a much lower lift from an involvement standpoint. All right. Excellent. Now, what's the one thing you think makes the biggest difference in being successful with the steering committee? We've seen ones that are very good. We've seen ones that have struggled. What's the, what makes the difference there? You know, I would have to say that it's communication and, and it's communication that's clear and aligned. Um, and, and I know that's hard. And I also know that, you know, we've all heard communication, communication, there's not enough communication, you know, no matter where you go over my years of doing maintenance assessments and reliability assessments, asset management assessments, there's always a desire for more communication. But in this case, I think, and, and I, again, I think back to that paper mill in Canada, I think they did a nice job with this because they took the time to practice communicating it together before they went out and communicated it to the organization. And that could be the vision, that could be risk, that could be reinforcing questions. But but the point is, you know, if you heard the question from a maintenance manager or you heard the question from an engineering manager or you heard the question from the plant manager or the HR manager or the controller for that matter, 
what you heard, although they use different words, was the same answer, the same basic philosophy. And I think that is absolutely key. If you can't say it in your own words, but convey the same message, you probably need to go practice as a, as a leadership team moving forward. Yeah, I had a similar experience where we had a steering committee. They called it something different, but it had union representation on there. It had all these other leaders in there. And they locked themselves in a conference room for about a week to work on messaging, understanding how they communicate. But then not only that is what are the likely questions to come out of this communication? That way they could build an FAQ and be prepared with some of the answers and that sort of stuff. So they were really, really well prepared for it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's one of the things the leaders have kind of gotten to the role they uh, have by having all the answers. And what, you know, what I what I definitely know is that at the end of the day, we want to make sure that if we don't know the answer or we're not sure that we're aligned with the rest of the leadership team, that we don't just have all the answers, that we don't answer something in a way that may conflict with others in the organization. Because as soon as one person says something that it that conflicts with the others, there's going to start a rumor mill on the backside in the group that's implementing the change. Hey, you know, Billy Bob's not supporting this because he said blah, blah, blah. And uh, we want to try to make sure that, you know, again, I know leaders got to the position they're in because they had a lot of the answers, but this is one of those times when you're going through a change initiative that you got to be willing to say, hey, I don't have the answer, but let me go talk to the leadership team. Let me go talk to my peers and get back to you uh, and get back to them. Don't just promise it. I mean, actually get back to them moving forward. Yep, absolutely. Now, what is the one action you want our listeners to take away in regards to steering committees? Do they need to go learn more about it? Do they need to start building one if they're implementing stuff? What do you want them to do? Well, and I'm going to talk again specifically to maintenance and reliability because, you know, when you're doing a maintenance, reliability, or an asset management implementation, number one thing that you need to do is make sure that you're modeling proactive behavior. You know, if you're telling someone they need to quit being reactive, they need to quit firefighting, they need to start planning and executing against that plan, right? and then you're still knee-jerk reacting to everything, then I think that's an issue. So, you know, you know, as I kind of think through that, to me, the number one takeaway is sit down with your peers on the leadership team, forget lunch, get as grumpy as possible, and list every single thing that could go wrong that could mess up this implementation. Because if I go through that risk exercise and identify what could go wrong, then I can proactively address it through my communication plan uh, moving forward. And of course, I've talked about the importance of the communication plan and standardized communication, but it all starts with knowing the reactive things that you're likely to face so that you can proactively plan to address them and model the behavior of proactivity. All right. I like it. I like it. So become proactive, model that proactive behavior. Now, Sean, we've talked quite a bit about steering committees, and this is a topic we could probably talk about for days if we really wanted to, but we don't have all that time. So before we go, where can people find out more about you? What activities events are involved? If they want to reach out and ask and talk to you about steering committees, how do they do all that? 
All right. So I think there's a couple things um, that's that are coming up in in uh, early next year that I think might be able to help some folks. And then, of course, there's always LinkedIn. I know you, James, and I both are, are big fans of LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn can be a wonderful place to pose a question to your peers and get really good answers. Unlike some of the other social media networks, there's not as many trolls. I'm not going to say there are not any trolls, but there are not as many trolls out there in the LinkedIn world. So you can get really really good answers. Uh, James uh, jumps on there and answers things. I jump on and answer things as well. But connect with James and I on LinkedIn so that we can see those those questions and, and things that you're asking. The second thing that I would say is there are two conferences coming up. Uh, one is called the Leading Reliability Conference. It's going to be January 13th and 14th. It is a virtual or an online conference. Um, you can go to leadingreliability.com and see more about that one. Um, and uh, that's a conference that that both Fluke and UE Systems and uh, us at Iridicio, uh, as well as RDI, are all participating in and providing a lot of content. So there's a lot of good examples there. But there's also good networking in those events. You can jump over into the chat room. You can chat in uh, the, the window. I think that's the one thing that's kind of unique to online uh, conferences is you can talk while the presenter's speaking and it's not as rude. So, you know, you can post to the window, you can ask others what they're doing in certain areas that the that the uh, individual presenter is talking about. And I think that's a really cool functionality. And then finally, our first face-to-face -face conference, at least we think it's going to be our first face-to-face -face conference, barring any uh, news to the otherwise, uh, is the University of Tennessee Marcon Conference from March 8th through the 11th. Um, I really like this conference. I, I think it's 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 smaller, but it's also, it's comfortable. You can walk around and talk to people. You can share what you're doing. You know, you guys can compare notes. You can, you can look at examples. There's plenty of room. There's couches and things you can kind of have little breakout sessions in. So I really, really like this conference for being able to connect and find out what others are doing. And interestingly enough, it was the last conference that everyone attended before COVID. So it was the week that the COVID lockdown started. So it'll be one year, basically, from the time that we've done face-to-face -face conferences. So hopefully uh, that one will be available for folks. And I know I'll be there and I, I hope to see many of the listeners there as well. Um, and so that's, you know, I think LinkedIn is your big resource. And then I've given you also an online conference and a conference that will be both online and face-to-face, -face, which is Mark on. All right. Excellent. Some great resources there. Now, Sean, one other question I always like to ask is what is your go-to resource or favorite resource you can share with our listeners about this topic today? Well, I think I'm going to kind of, again, James, twist your arm a little bit and add a couple things in. Uh, I talked about uh, Ken Blanchard earlier, and I think Ken Blanchard's work around situational leadership is great for leadership teams and, and uh, steering committees to understand because they need to know that as people change – uh, or as the organization matures through the implementation, the needs that they have is going to change. So we're not suggesting that your leadership style has to change completely, but you're tweaking it to make sure you address the needs of those individuals. So a quick uh, Google search of Ken Blanchard, uh, Situational Leadership 2. Uh, there's also multiple books that he's written. 
uh, with other writers that that you could use from that resource. Uh, the next one is a brand new book to me. Um, I just got it in the mail from Amazon a couple weeks ago, and it's called Change Management: The People Side of Change. And this builds off of the work of Jeffrey Hyatt, who brought us the ADCAR model. Uh, so any of you that have heard of ADCAR or have used that tool when leading changes within your organization, uh, this is kind of the next step, if you will. And that's uh, a fairly new book. I have uh, just, as I said, just started going through it, but I can already tell that I like a lot of what I'm seeing. So uh, change management, the people side of change, Jeffrey Hyatt, um, and uh, he has a co-author on it that I do not know, uh, but his name is Timothy I believe it's crazy, but I don't, I'm not 100% sure on that pronunciation. Uh, but certainly worth a, a good look um, from that perspective. And then the one that I always talk about, um, and that is, uh, is John Cotter uh, and his, his famous book called Leading Change. Um, his eight step model, I think, is absolutely critical for leadership teams. In fact, I think it should be a checklist that leadership teams use uh, as they move forward through their implementation. I will tell you that Cotter has done some rebranding of his model. So if you have the original model, uh, the words have changed a little bit. But the, uh, the, the intent uh, of each step is still very much the same. I think that they've just added a one-word kind of way of saying each of the elements uh, in his eight-step model. So those are three resources that I would say add a lot of value to folks that are kicking off an initiative that are part of a leadership team, uh, or maybe, you know, they're just like me. They're an engineer who um, really was very deep in the technical stuff and, and really needed to raise my head up and realize that if I don't get people involved, I, I can't be successful no matter how good my engineer or my technical solutions are. Yep, absolutely. It's it's the soft stuff is the hard stuff, right? So if we get people on board, we're good to go. Absolutely. Well, Sean, I want to thank you for taking the time. I will make sure to put all these resources in the show notes so people can easily get a hold of them. Once again, thanks for talking to us today about the change management journey and specifically steering committees. They're, my opinion, often overlooked in our maintenance and reliability implementations. And I think we gave a good intro to, if you will, on steering committees to hopefully help our listeners. So thank you. Absolutely. James, I thought of something that I'm going to add in here too, um, because we talked about it, but I don't think we ever dive deep enough in it. So I think it's a good way to kind of wrap up. Um, and that is, you know, you do have the option to not have a steering team. And, and we alluded to that earlier. Uh, that becomes a very much a champion model. You've got one individual that's kind of moving it forward. And um, and so we didn't, we didn't really dive into that, but that's what you and I have seen. I know in a lot of the assessments that we've done, uh, one individual. And and don't get me wrong, it can work without a leadership team. But when that individual leaves, nine times out of 10, whatever they've, they've championed, whatever their passion is that they've worked on, will leave with them. So having this leadership team gets a group on board that really understands all the facets. So if there's turnover in the organization, we continue going the right direction. So, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of address that. I know it's a little bit here on the end, but uh, I, I think it's an area that uh, a lot of people can relate to. They've championed it for years. It's time to build a leadership team. Yep, absolutely. That is a great ad. Well, Sean, great way to close it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, James. Have a great weekend.
I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.